you. Thank you, Chris. Very crisp microphone here. I'll shift that one. It's dark out there. Oh, a few light bulbs don't work. So, uh, I'm Francis. I used to stand here a lot until uh, two years ago. And uh, it's quite something to stand here again this morning, Harrison. It's, uh, you know, it's quite a spot. So, I have uh, something to share. I'm going to lead in with a bit of personal context and then uh, uh, what's on my heart and end with the scripture for today. So, uh, first of all, uh, some of you are going to be thinking um, or struggling to understand me. Typically, a new accent takes a bit of getting used to. I'm sort of like Lynn Starenberg, but I'm from the other island. So uh, it's a little different, but I hope I hope you can uh, follow me. Otherwise, mentally do what you do on your voice messages and you know play at half speed or something. So leaving leaving Trinity Church at the end of 2020, and uh, our life here and um, returning to New Zealand has been a big thing. It's no small deal after 18 years of living here, and uh, there's been change in many ways. Letting go, letting go of people, of relationships, of, of what was life. And then there was stepping into where we'd come from, but it's all changed, you know, 20 years or so, and, and feeling quite out of tune, just out of tune. You sort of know functionally where everything is, but you're not in tune. And for both Barbara and I, a growing awareness almost daily um, that we have come back different from when we left, even fitting into our families of origin. We didn't kind of just, you know, resume where we had been. Everything was a bit out of tune. And we saw what was once normal through very different eyes. It's not so normal. It's weird, in fact. And then within that, that comes, because we're sort of reflective, serious people, this sort of more personal evaluation. Maybe midlife is a good time for that. Um, lots of thinking. Sometimes thinking back, if I were to do things again, how would I do it differently? Um, sometimes with re regrets over missed moments. You know, I should have seen that, but I didn't. Now I do. So we pray about it. So standing here again to preach in this space is, is quite a big thing, and that process is ongoing. I don't, Barbara and I don't think we've landed. It's two years so far. And uh, so I come back, and it's different, and I'm different. Okay, so within all this reflection, just this is just to let you know sort of where we're coming from and let a few people tune into a, my voice. Um, I found myself thinking more and more about Jesus. That sounds very pious and very holy, but with all these questions and experiences, my, my mind just kept going to Jesus. You know, without Jesus, we are sunk as Christians, as people. We really, really haven't got a show. So I kept thinking more about Jesus, and in particular, communion. 
I sort of started that process during 2020. We had a few COVID-safe communion services here. Um, but that process kept going for me. Um, Jesus and communion. What do I need to learn about being at the table of the Lord? And my guiding, probing question about communion and church, incidentally, so when Harrison asked me to preach here, guess what was on my mind? I looked at the passage, the road to Emmaus, the breaking of bread. Click, that's where we're going. So my guiding and probing question about communion and church and things has become, what does Jesus actually want? When he set things up, when he prays for us, what is really his desire? So after 30 years of being a priest, I thought it was time to ask that question. Um, so today, what might I be able to say about that? And I'll start with some background uh, awareness. Uh, I, I met Thomas Plumutal yesterday, and Thomas Plumutal once said to me, Francis, you start way out there, and you spiral around, and you go around, and you get there. So true to form, I'm, I'm doing that. Um, a conclusion I keep reaching as I think about what does Jesus want is that we Christians through church history we have a long history of taking godly things and somehow changing them, repackaging them in ways or applying them in ways other than what God intended. And a lot of it has to do because culture and church sort of tried to work together here in Europe. And it's us Christians who do this. We take the things of Jesus, we take the things of God, and we sort of process them and out comes something Hmm, kind of different. We misappropriate, or maybe even stronger, hijack things that God and provides. You know what Jesus called that in his day? This is going to be a harsh word, but you test it. He called it hypocrisy. Because he was banging against us all the time with the Pharisees. You take the things of God and you use them for your own ends. So that's a, a level of reflection that I've been in, uh, especially going into a uh, new ministry context. I don't just want to repeat because this is what I've always done, it was what I'm used to. What does Jesus actually want? And what are the, some of the things that are really normal in church that actually, is this Jesus? Or is this something that's been made up or made of the things of God. So you've got a sense of where I'm going. Let's lighten up a bit. Um, part of the reason for coming to Europe is, well, big reason is to see our son, Nat, and his wife, Krissa, and our one grandchild, Ada. So um, last week, this was just after we met in Lausanne, Switzerland. And something happened with our three and a half year old granddaughter there. Um, she was so pleased to see her grandparents. So she calls me Opa and Barbara Grandma. Now she knows us from screen, so we get to zoom in every couple of weeks and, you know, as long as her attention span allows, because she loves pushing the red button. So uh, had enough of you, Opa and Grandma. Okay, on to something else. So. In her excitement at seeing us, because she knew we're coming, we're coming, we're coming, 
um, she sort of, you know, uh, built up to this. Um, we met in a cafe and she came in the door and she rushed in with this little bunch of wild flowers that she picked for me. Okay, dandelions and, and uh, daisies, uh, little blue things. Um, and she, she thrust them in my hand. And then she was still so full of excitement at seeing Opa, she went and got the doorstop from the uh, cafe, which was a very ornate sort of folk art doorstop, about this big, and she picked it up and she gave me that as well. Um, so it was so cute, and we all laughed. Um, you know, that was, that was just really good. So the picture is this little while later where I'm still... Um, you know, glowing with this little bunch of flowers. She's moved on. She's now grumpy about something else. But I held this bunch of flowers as long as I could. The doorstop had to quietly go back to where it belonged. Here's the thing. Ada was bringing me her worship. She was bringing me her worship. And she did it not out of a sense of what I might want. She's three. She did it totally out of what was in her. And it's beautiful. And it's cute. And it's so human. Worship in the sense of my worth, who I was to her. That little bunch of flowers. That grabbing the doorstop. Um... And we delighted in it. And you can see my grin there, even though she has moved on. Um, she's, she's got something to complain about there. I don't know what it was. Um, and I suspect that God is often in a similar situation with us. That we rush to bring what we think is a good idea. And we tend to be a bit like little Ada. Our thinking is shaped by what's in us and what's around us. The long learning curve of the Old Testament, the long learning curve of the Old Testament was how do you worship a holy God? How do you worship a holy God? Because all the peoples around have worked out their ways of doing it. You know, that bunch over there, you sacrifice your children. That bunch over there, you go to the temple for sacred sex. That bunch over there, this is what you do. But Yahweh is a holy God. How do you worship a holy God? And it's, you read through the, whole, the Old Testament, and it's a slow learn. Um, it involves listening to God over what we think might be appropriate. Surely the Almighty would love this. Oh, oh. No. Classic story is the one with David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. You know the story? David thinks, you know what? We'll put it on a brand new ox cart with oxen that have never pulled anything. We'll pull out the best equipment. But he was ignorant of the fact that the Lord had made it clear that the Ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. And so everything went wrong. He had to learn um, what God had revealed about worshipping a holy God. So that's a bit by background. So 
Then I go on to consider how we do Holy Communion. And um, again, I've been a priest for 30 years. This, this table was familiar, familiar ground. I've served in four dioceses in the Anglican Communion. And I've seen all sorts of concerns and emphases applied to communion. Um, and I suspect more and more they are more about what's convenient to us as churchgoers, what the institutional powers that be are thinking about. And I wonder, Lord, are we clouding out your words? Are we missing something? Are we not seeing what you want us to see? Because, because, because. I'll give three examples. Let's have a look. I'm pushing the button, but nothing's happening. Next screen. Can someone? Okay, we'll give it. There we go. The three tenors. So um, the first thing that I sense shaping communion is there's a big concern to get it right. It's almost an anxiety. Much ink and talk flows about what to pray, what to do with your hands, how and when. And it's, it's all assumed as if communion is about the priest getting it right over here. Now, this has a long history. Um, and in case you don't know, Harrison, us we, we can be very precious about this. Um, maybe, maybe communion isn't really about what the priest does at the table. Just plant that there. Something that's more current to me and in, in where I'm ministering at the moment, but I've seen communion made into a focus for intense personal piety. It's about me praying, Catholic or evangelical, and it's about the personal private devotion to God. And that piety can be quite antisocial, quite sterile in its privacy. I wonder, might Jesus have wanted, wanted something more social because he instituted a meal? Is it about people all being in their own space, doing their own thing? Protestants will remember that was one of the things that was big in the Reformation. Priests, you know, Luther went to Rome and saw all these priests in a little hutch altar doing their own thing. Totally lost the social dimension. And then I've seen, thirdly, communion used as an opportunity to act out and reinforce ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, what is he talking about? Church order, socialization, everyone in their place. And I found this strongly when I came to Europe and the Church of England. It was sort of on steroids. Um, lots of concern with the social structure, hierarchy, who walked in what order and who sat where and and, and how the, the theatre of um, the sociology was played out. Um, and what happens there is it's all about the table and the sanctuary and owned by the clergy and the, the laity kind of come as consumers. Um, happily, this church, one of the things I really liked about this space is it's almost a, a single room. Most churches have two rooms. Um, and uh, it, works, it works in the right direction. So those are three things that I, I've noticed about communion. So, and I wonder, does any of this matter to the Lord? Was this in his head? 
when he sat down and he said so beautifully in Luke's gospel, if I translate the Greek literally, desiringly I have desired to share this meal with you. Hear the heart of the Lord. Was he concerned about doing it right? Establishing a church order? Or deep personal piety? Hmm, I'm skeptical. So, what did Jesus want most from Holy Communion? I'm taking you through my process of the last while. I'm convinced that on, the, on and around the day that Jesus pioneered and instituted what we call Holy Communion, so Maundy Thursday, Holy Thursday, the Last Supper, you know, that, that time frame, he pointed to his intentions in three ways. He set out three things that really, I think, indicate what he was about, what he wanted. So, guess what? We're going to go through those three things. Firstly, um, he gave the great commandment. And that was after he had demonstrated it by washing feet. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to connect that to the table. That was his purpose. His great commandment. Clue number one. Secondly, he led his friends. One of the things I so loved when I took communion here was Order One, Church of England prayer begins on the night he was betrayed. Imagine sitting there at table knowing that guy is going to dob you in in a few hours' time and still sharing the meal with them. He led his friends, including his betrayer, in a symbolic meal representing his costly self-sacrificial giving, his brokenness for their wholeness. He demonstrated his self-giving and then he said, do this, do this, what I'm doing, in memory of me. Now, Harrison will know we can have several sermons on that line because each word is, is so deep. Um, I want you to do this. to recapture in this moment who I am for you. And then thirdly, in the last hours before betrayal and arrest, he prayed. Um, there is a, a Latin saying, much beloved of Anglicans, lex credendi, lex, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of faith. And it's a profound thing. I listen to people pray. Why do I do that? 
It's beautiful, sometimes scary, sometimes heretical. Because what people pray is what people believe. We pray out of our, our, uh, our faith. And so here is Jesus, last opportunity to have a good, undisturbed prayer time. And what does he pray? And here is expression. This is at the end because it's reported in, in John's uh, Gospel, chapter 17. And John beautifully allows the rhythm of repetition to roll. And he comes towards the end. Let it be, I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. These things are happening around the table. This is the context. This is Jesus setting out what this is all about. So when I draw this together, I hear Jesus longing for his friends to be a, and his followers to be a unity, a unity of love. Just as in centuries to come, Christianity would understand God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And dot, 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 there was a church named Trinity. He was praying for that. That was his earnest prayer before he would be arrested. And he prayed that this could be lived out, celebrated, healed, practiced, and manifest to the joy of the Father and the Son. He instituted a meal to enable that, to focus that. And again, as Anglican theologians love to say, this is incarnational. This is taking all that has been said and prayed and the, the sweep of the Spirit and putting it into a form that we human beings can take hold of and work with. Do this. I want to illustrate this with reference to a film I saw a few years ago. I see lots of you nodding. You're with me. But here comes an illustration. Um, preachers have funny relationships with illustrations. We can fall in love with them. Um, so I want to share this one. Has anyone seen this film, Coupe de Ville? 1990, it's family viewing, if you want to get around to it. A father of three sons has a limited time to live. He's an American living on the west coast of America somewhere. His sons do not get on and are divided. Who else out there is part of three sons? Okay, we can form a little support group. You've got three boys, haven't you? Okay. Um, I don't know if he's here today, but um, one of the church members has five sons. And he said to me when I visited him, the house is always on fire. Okay, if you have boys and beyond three, there's, there's always fun. So this father has three sons. He has a limited time to live. His sons do not get on. They are divided. And it pains his father heart. So he devises a plan. A plan for reconciliation, no less. Um, so he buys a classic car. A classic car for their mother. A Cadillac, Coupe de Ville, so it's an open touring car, 
um, I googled this because I needed some more um, car, car information and it's 57 to 62 so it's that sort of petrol's just there and, and cars are big. Um, he buys this car and he says listen I want you to drive this car from the east coast to the west coast for your mother. So these three guys that are in the bottom um, are recruited for that. Do it for your mother. Now, one of them is a regimented army sergeant. He's at the wheel there. There's one who's a dreamer, and there's others, the other is a deviant or a crim. How are they going to get on? So that's the setup for the film. And the plot unfolds. Um, everything that can go wrong does go wrong. You can hear those guys in the bottom right saying, you boys in a whole heap of trouble. Um, the car gets, well, it's very much secondhand by that stage. And they have to respond and fix things again and again. But the, here's the thing. This car and the road trip works the prayer of the father. It works the prayer of the father for his sons. And on this journey, they learn to love and appreciate each other. They learn because of the car. They stand together, they share their lives, they find communion, common life. They're brothers. So it's not easy. But the day comes when they bring the car to their mother as the father had asked them. Mission accomplished. And that was what the dying father set his son up for. That would change, reconcile, and bond them as brothers. That's what that car means. It wasn't the car. In fact, when the car arrives, the father's quite disinterested in it. He looks at his boys. And they're together. They know their communion. I think Jesus set up the shared meal in memory of him in a similar way. Even to the extent that he did it with his betrayer sitting next to him. This is gutsy, isn't it? This is, this is and it's difficult. What makes it so difficult? That's what I found. We find it difficult to love. We find it difficult to be there for each other in a real servant-hearted way. You know, I'll do a little bit. That's okay. Be nice. That's okay. But something on a par with foot washing. One of the things Barbara and I are learning is how difficult people find it to have a meal, an intimate meal. I've had some great meals this week with friends. You know, you relax or chillax at table and uh, there's wine and there's bread and there's but it doesn't it's not always like that it can be quite frosty quite a uh, little tense but this is but jesus says do this do this in memory of me there's a there's a threshold to um to get over here but this is where Jesus wants to take us with bread and wine shared in his memory. 
So because loving is kind of difficult to do, and being personal and being together and being vulnerable at table, the typical human response, I suggest, is to cut corners and change focus. Cut corners and change focus. Instead of being an engagement with others and the shared love of God, what the early church called a love feast. Love feast. We have a church and the church before us. What do we do? We mystify it, we ritualize it, we pretty it up, we individualize it while doing it all together. And I quote the shortest verse in the Bible, and Jesus wept. Ask us to have a meal together in a way that honors, remembers, invokes him, his prayer, his, his, his commandment, his example. And we turn it into something else. Not all us. It's, you know, it's, it's been happening for centuries, but we buy into that. It's time to go to Emmaus. So, on the evening of the day of resurrection, two travelers walking out of Jerusalem meet a stranger they do not recognize, but should have. And for some reason, he doesn't identify himself. The messianic secret is in operation. God works in hidden ways until we see. The trio walked together and they talked together. Clopas, an unnamed friend, quite possibly misses Clopas. Quite possibly. Was sad with disappointed hope. Disappointed hope. They carried the hope of the people of Israel for God's redeeming Messiah. And they had dared to hope that it just might be happening. And then came the cross. That's the place they were in. At least they had begun to consider that Jesus might have been the Messiah. And then, no, not to be. And that's where Jesus took them. And as he fanned that disappointed hope, those embers that were still within them, they started to burn. It wasn't that he was giving them great information. No, he was speaking to the hope that was within them and fanning it into flame, and it was burning. And yet, they did not recognize him. Now, i just make an observation. This was a scripture study in which they didn't recognize Jesus. But... The hope in their hearts did not yet link to the one who was actually fanning it beside them by opening the scriptures. And then, after prevailing upon this unknown minister of scripture to stay with them, something happened that opened their eyes, brought them to see. And we read, they recognized him in the breaking of bread. We're not told any detail, but something about the way he did it gave the clue. 
and their spiritual eyes suddenly saw. They've been prepared in the word, but it was the breaking of the bread that did it. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then they ran back. I like that bit. I'm a runner. They ran back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Even as Jesus had somehow disappeared. Coming into land now. I suggest this is what Jesus wants. He wants what we call communion. The Last Supper, the Eucharist, whatever label you apply. He wants that to reveal him. To be an occasion where people see with spiritual eyes. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us. He wants us to recognize him in the bread that is broken. He wants the world to see him in us. United in love, expressed in a meal. And he wants the Father to see him in us. And he gave us this meal. He said, do this. This is where it's going to happen. It's where it's going to come together. And I'll say it again. It's difficult. It's difficult. He calls us into the space where it's a, such a vulnerable space. question is, is that what we are open to? Are we op open to that? I'm still very much on this, working through this. I've taken you to as far as I've got. Um, I've got clues for how to move forward. But um, I'm leaving you with that question. In all the things we do, but in particular in communion, what is it? that Jesus really wants out of us. And are we in tune with that? Oliver is going to slowly make his way here. Don't know how you do it, Oliver, but today all the songs were in, in keys I could sing. It's been a while. And I asked uh, for a particular song now because um, this was written about 25 years ago by uh, a worship leader whose name has just slipped my mind, Matt Redmond, thank you, a worship leader who came to the insight that actually um, as a worship leader, he and the other musicians were sort of doing things to satisfy themselves. Um, it's a sobering place to come to. And so he wrote the song to articulate the prayer. It's all about you, Lord. 
and a prayer of repentance. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Because it's all about you.